Well, one of our favorite topics here at 1819 News, the podcast, is how can we help men become better men, better versions of themselves, better husbands, better uh, fathers? How can we help you guys do that? Well, today I'm bringing on one of the most tremendous resources in that space. Uh, He is a pastor and he is an author. That's Pastor Chris Wiley, or as he's known as an author, C.R. Wiley. Uh, He's authored uh, the book, The Man of the House, The Household in the War for the Cosmos, and his most recent in the house of Tom Bombadil. He comes on to share his story about the way he was raised and how that's influenced him into jumping into helping men become better men, better husbands, better fathers. Shares that with us as well as so many other things. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of this year's podcast. As always, we've got a great episode for you today. We've got Pastor Chris Wiley, or as you may know him, C.R. Wiley, from that is his author name on his books. He's the author of three incredible books, uh, all a little bit different, uh, two of them really in the same vein, and the, and the third one is as well, but it's from Lord of the Rings, and if you're not a Lord of the Rings nerd, I guess we'll try not to nerd out too much on Lord of the Rings here. Um, but the first one is The Man of the House, uh, and it is an incredible book that really gets us back to um, a view of biblical patriarchy, the role of the man, the paterfamilias, um, and um, then uh, the household in the war for the cosmos. And his most recent, I believe, is titled the House, of Tom, uh, the House of Tom Bombadil. And if we focus too much on that, we would Lord of the Rings nerd out. So we'll probably focus more on uh, the household in the war for the cosmos. I think that's the most applicable for, for my audience and what, what um, the culture war we, we're in the importance of the household, specifically the Christian household, uh, and and what that means and how that's actually the nuclear power plant in which we can fight uh, this fight um, is is the Christian household. So we're going to talk about that, uh, but first, first, before we jump into that, words are hard today, um, I'm going to go through uh, my normal thing and tell you guys, uh, we need you guys to join the fight. Alabama needs 1819 News. 1819 News needs you. We need you guys to support the work we're doing financially. You can go to the website. There's a button that says become a member. Click that. You can join at different levels. And depending on what level you join, you will be uh, receiving different merch and you'll have access to behind the scenes content like Pastor Chris and I are going to be talking about uh, toxic matriarchy. Um, That should be fun and get us in a little bit of trouble. And uh, we both probably stay in that lane. Uh, and that's okay. So please do that. Sign up, uh, become a member today. Membership start as little as $5 a month. So with all that, I want to welcome in, it's hard not to call him CR, but that's just a weird thing to call someone. So I'm going to call him pastor Chris. Um, welcome to the show, pastor Chris. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be with you. Awesome. Uh, I'm really excited about this. Um, and I'll just say my goal, um, with having you on, um, is, resources that have been hugely beneficial to me and helping me uh, be a wonderful husband. Uh, at least I'd like to think of myself as that my wife might describe me as that in public. We'll see, but to be a better husband uh, and to be a, a good father, I have seven children. We homeschool or training our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Uh, it has taken a lot of work. Uh, God has blessed me with wonderful men who've come in and, and taught me a lot of things. And there's been tremendous resources 
uh, that I've had that have helped me do that. And you are one of the kind of leading people out there in the Christian space of helping men uh, be men and, and help men obey the scriptures as it pertains to um, gendered piety, as Pastor Rich Lusk likes to call it. Uh, and so <clears throat> we want to jump into that. So um, first, we love story uh, here at 1819 News. I want <clears throat> to story always relates to what people do. You can always go back and hear their life story and then and hear how that plays into what it is that they do. I believe that's the case with you. So if you could kind of give us, a, you know, where you were born, how you grew up, how that impacted you getting into this Christian masculinity space. Um, and then we'll take the conversation from there into talking about the household and the war for the cosmos. Okay. Well, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, how deep do I want to dive? <laughs> So I, you know, I just to kind of put things, I guess, in a in a in the right frame of reference. So, m- both my parents were Episcopalian, um, and uh, you know, Episcopalians tend to be uh, in the upper class, sort of uh, of this of our society, upper classes of our society. So I kind of was born into a setting like that. My father was an, kind of a junior academic. He was at. Uh, Washington, you in St. Louis. Uh, it was before that he was at University of Buffalo. My mother was something of an arts lover. And uh, so I grew up in an environment um, that could be described as uh, bohemian in, in a mm. certain way. Um, you know, it was uh, the 60s and 70s. And so everybody was, you know, looking for themselves. And I like to say everybody thought that they would find themselves in California. <laughs> you know, it's a, so it was, ne- then you never found yourself sort of in and through your responsibilities. Those had to be sloughed off so that you could find that inner, innocent, childlike self that you could just delight in. And so everything else was an encumbrance. So my father was a seeker. Uh, he, he got involved in a range of things, but eventually ended up in Scientology, believe it or not. And he's he's still a Scientologist today, but uh, we were on a kind of path of downward mobility during all that time. My mother was, uh, you know, troubled person and was in and out of mental institutions. Uh, uh, beginning at that point, uh, in terms of our family turmoil, and then for the rest of her life, she died young. But um, anyway, uh, it was a different time. You know, we didn't have uh, the concept uh, helicopter parenting. Mm-hmm. Basically, I was basically on my own, largely unsupervised from the time I was about seven or eight years old. Mm. And, um, you know, I so our family disintegrated, broke up, and we found my, uh, my mother and my sister and I found ourselves in western Pennsylvania, which is a very different place than where I was in St. Louis, blue collar environment. And uh, I became a ward of the state, uh, spent time in foster care and uh, was uh, fortunate to be brought into a little blue collar church there uh, in Meadville, Pennsylvania. Uh, And in that environment, I got to see a whole different kind of guy, uh, a guy who was faithful to his family, uh, worked with his hands, um, was a believer and uh, had, you know, the scriptures as his authoritative standard. So all of those things were very important for me. Um, and then I went to college and so on and so forth. But anyway, when it, when I, when I came to the point where I, uh, got married and had a family of my own, I didn't have, you know, uh, you know, the personal family connection to, uh, 
role models that a lot of folks do. Uh, but I did have role models, and those were those guys that I knew in Western Pennsylvania. But I, I uh, found myself at that point in my life in Cambridge, Massachusetts, of all places, right between Harvard and MIT. I spent some time at Harvard Divinity School. And it was during that time period of my life where I was involved in urban ministry stuff that I could see the world that we now see all around us emerging. And I didn't like what I saw. And I knew where things were trending. I would tell people where I where things were trending and they never believed me. They always thought I was alarmist or overreacting. They couldn't believe that people would actually believe the stuff that people believe today. But uh, the early believers were living in Cambridge <laughs> and places like that. And so I knew them pretty, pretty well. Anyway, uh, it was because of my interest in digging into the roots of the household that and it, it's sort of its place in our our civilization that I read Xenophon and Aristotle and so forth. Now, this is a period of time where, you know, evangelicals were trying to defend the family. And you heard a lot about family values and James Dobson had, you know, focus on the family and all that kind of stuff. But it was so psychologized and so sort of internal and sort of uh, tied into uh, a companionate sort of modern understanding of the way marriage is supposed to work and so forth, that a lot of what people took for granted in the first century, stuff that we see actually described in scripture, was completely alien to yeah. even evangelicals like James Dobson. As good as, good as he was, you know, as great a guy as he was, he, he, was, he was not in touch with it. So I was, I was, uh, interested in learning about how things used to work. So, for example, you know, when you look at the household codes in the Colossians and Ephesians, the vast majority of the evangelicals in the United States today just avoid those. I mean, you never hear them read from the pulpit. And I thought, you know what? I, I believe the Apostle Paul knows more than uh, our evangelical sort of uh, elite. I, I just have that. I just suspect he does, <laughs> or, you know, and so I thought I, I want to get into his head. I want to figure out what was he thinking and why, why would these household codes seem commonsensical and, and even, uh, liberating. And we don't think of them that way today. I wanted to know why. And so that's what got me, uh, looking into the, you know, to the, to the history of the household. And uh, as a result, I wrote books like Man of the House. Uh, I was listening to one of the speeches you gave uh, recently. I think it kind of ties into Household and War for the Cosmos. Um, it, and it's not really one book I want to dive into. It's really just the whole, not theory, maybe history of the household. And um, I think the speech was titled Against the Recreational Household. And right. going <clears throat> into the history of Households used to be, you know, mother and father living in the home, productive household that generated income that allowed them to survive. Children worked, you know, and walk through kind of that history of the household and what it's turned into. Sure. Well, if you think about the world before the Industrial Revolution, everywhere around the world, uh, not just in the West, but in the East and in Africa and other places, um, the household was the center of productive activity. It wasn't just the place you went to at the end of the day to get away from work. It was where the work was. So working from home, which everybody thinks is like a new idea, was yeah. the norm. <laughs> That's the way things were. So the 
the, the word uh, economy, oikos, nomos, those are the two Greek words that uh, uh, are brought together in, uh, into the and serve as sort of the etymological sources for the word, uh, the English word economy, literally means house law. So oikos, that's the house, and then nomos, law. And the, the law of the house was the constitution of the house, you could say. Like when we think about a constitutional order, mm-hmm. we're talking about how things are supposed to work. So the law of the house uh, was established uh, in such a way that all the members of the household worked together for the mutual enrichment of everybody in the house. So, you know, the idea that women would like go to work outside the home just was uh something people couldn't imagine because there there was so much to do at home that was productive and meaningful. Yeah. And the same thing was the case with, with men. So you think, you know, the kind of the easy way to look, look at it and think about it is say the subsistence farm, which was what most farms were, you know, throughout the history of the world. Sometimes, you know, you'd end up with uh, very successful farmers who were able to grow and produce goods for the market. But uh, much of the time people just produced, you know, uh, a living for themselves and they work together. And so husbands and wives and, and children and, you know, extended family, grandparents, all they would all work together to bring in or make a living for themselves. And then the trades worked the same way. Say you were a blacksmith, probably your, your smithy was right behind the house. Probably your wife was involved in building and in procuring the raw materials. You know, she was uh, making sure the kids uh, you know, were with their father learning the trade if they were boys and so on and so forth. And the girls were, you know, involved in all the things that women traditionally have been involved in when it comes with to, you know, sort of household economics. Uh, all of the stuff that women did, you know, everything from like elder care to child care to, you know, food production, all that kind of stuff uh, today has been outsourced to you know, social service agencies and public schools and things like that. So it's no wonder uh, that women in the, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, so forth, started to feel like their lives were empty and meaningless because basically uh, the work that they had always performed was now being done someplace else. So um, anyway, uh, what I've tried to do is uh, recapture the spirit of the productive household and encourage people to consider ways to revive it in our world today. And I think it, it's, it's a, it's always been viable and it's never really gone away. Uh, but, uh, the, the people who run our society, it's large institutions are not interested in that. They'd rather have you come and work for them. So you never hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I think it's, um, Interesting. You talked about the, I think it was in man of the house, the, the whole craze with, uh, prepping. And so like this idea that, you know, the, the, the world, the end of the world is upon us. We got to learn how to can beans and, you know, kill someone with a razor blade or whatever it was, however you worded it. And it's like, yeah, but it's not an imminent end. It's actually just all of these things that we've been relying upon. You can start with just the basic institutions of, public health, FBI, CIA, all these just government institutions, education that we just blindly trusted. Well, those have melted away. And now it's going to be things that we rely upon on like the worth of our money that's in the banks, you know, all these institutions, they're starting to go by the way. And the only thing that's going to be left is just kind of the laws of 
the cosmos that are like planting food, grows it, eats it, sustains us, like getting back to really basic things. And so it's not necessarily um, becoming a prepper because we think the the end of the world is upon us in the way that it's portrayed in a lot of media, but it's, it's really um, getting back in touch and getting rooted in with the way that the earth works and the way that we were kind of created um, so that we can sustain and, and the health that comes from that probably in the family unit. Well, yeah. I mean, we, had a tremendous amount of, say, social capital that had built up in the Christian West that served as really um, the basis for the tremendous productivity of, of, you know, people who went to work in large corporations or factories. But we are in a very different place today. Uh, You noted that that capital, I think, has been largely uh, lost. It's uh, been squandered. It, just give you an example. Um, when I was back in Connecticut, I saw an old friend, and his oldest son just graduated from trade school. Good kid. I've known him since he was little. and uh, he, But he's a young man now, and he graduated. And uh, his entire graduating class, 16 uh, guys who are electricians, were hired by Electric Boat. So Electric Boat, is the nuclear sub manufacturer in Bristol, Connecticut. So this is a pretty significant opportunity for these young guys coming right out of trade school. Problem is only one of them passed the drug test. Mm. Every other guy failed the drug test and therefore could not be hired. Uh, And the guy who passed the drug test was uh, my friend's son. That's the situation that we're in today. Mm. Households are in such disarray. Uh, We saw some recent reports that were published in the Wall Street Journal about uh, the inability of the you know uh, military services to recruit uh, qualified candidates f- to serve in the armed forces. They said se- I, uh, the figure I saw was seventy seven percent of the U.S. population that are you know at that age that they're looking at to bring into the military are disqualified mm. because of just a range of things. Um, health, uh, drug addiction, uh, education, just failure to, to, uh, you know, uh, be educated, <laughs> yeah. you know, so our public schools, uh, are not up to the task of cr- creating the kind of workforce that, you know, was taken for granted for such a long time and made, you know, American prosperity possible. What's happened in a weird way is that it you know I remember when I was younger it was more or less an un, it was more or less understood that parents and and public schools worked together and that the parents were really an important part of the picture today it's almost as though parents are a problem and are mm-hmm. told that they should keep their nose out of things and what we see actually happening is that the public schools are becoming less and less able to ed- actually do the work of education for a range of reasons. One is ideological capture, but just the other part of it is the sort of the family life of many of the students is just so bad that uh, the kids can't come to school ready to learn. Yeah. Now that, that is a huge problem uh, in Alabama. We see it <clears throat> firsthand in the inner cities that, there's absolutely no structure in the household whatsoever. There's no resemblance of anything that, you know, uh, of health and stability. And so they come in, the last thing they care about is what one plus one is, you know, and, and, and it gets really crazy. Um, I think another, and it's, uh, and it, 
And it's spread. You know, when we think about the inner cities, oftentimes we think about, I think, minorities, but it's everywhere now. Oh, yeah. It's everywhere. It's in it's in suburban America. Uh, it's in rural America. It's everywhere. Yeah, no. Um, my son uh, was in a, a rural Alabama public school for three years. And, you know, what we saw was just like, geez, it's pretty it's it's insane. And I, and I, I want to kind of even go back and, and put a little bit more color on on, on what you're saying about the capital. And, and, and it's something that I've tried to not necessarily tease out there, but just help my audience wrap their head around is this idea that. You know, our nation is an inheritance. You know, I had uh, Glenn Sunshine, your uh, one of your podcast partners. Uh, he came on, and and what you see is the the political theology that developed from really from Abraham to the apostles, from the apostles to Augustine, from Augustine to the Huguenots and the reformers, from the reformers to the Puritans and the Puritans to our founders. Um, it's an inheritance. You know, their sacrifices, their knowledge, all of these things that were handed down. Um, just this incredible gift that was given was this liberty in this nation that functioned the way it did because people were doing what they were supposed to be doing, which IE means the Bible has instructions and they were following them instructions for how families should function, churches should function, and how nations should function. God tells us. And when we do it, the overwhelming abounding fruit essentially was captured. If you think about it from a bank account standpoint, and we we've been living off the savings account since those days to where we're, we're now completely bankrupt and we're realizing, Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. You know, just think about like uh, the declaration of independence and the opening of that. Uh, that's the American creed. And that American creed assumes things to be the case uh, that most of our secular elites reject today. Yeah. So you and I uh, probably uh, have a much better understanding of what was on the founders' minds uh, than uh, most of the talking heads on CNN and all that kind of stuff. Because they deny the fundamental, well, self-evident truths yeah. that that they said were so and, and were the basis, the justification for the American constitutional order. <clears throat> One last topic. I, I definitely want to squeeze in. Um, among a lot of the men that I've learned from in this, you know, it's, you know, they, they call it the red pill manosphere space. And then within that, there's the Christian red pill manosphere space. Um, and for people who have no idea what I'm talking about, I mean, so let's look on the secular side. You have Jordan Peterson, Andrew Tate, and these guys <clears throat> who I think Andrew Tate, I mean, it's the last thing I want my son is learning how to be a man from Andrew Tate. However, when you, you compare it to like, Mr. Beast and his co-host that's transitioning and you have, you know, uber amounts of children who are watching Mr. Beast and thinking that this is cool. Andrew Tate's probably in that positive in that sense out here in this weird, (laughs) not Christian world. Jordan Peterson, I think has a lot of really, really good things to say, but at the end of the day, it's it's almost a, it's a a shame, a strike. I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for against the Christian church that these pagans are coming out in teaching young men how to be men, because that was always the church's job. That was always Christian men's job to do it. And, and our, uh, the people who are running our evangelical churches are cowards. They're effeminate. Uh, they, the last thing they want to do is upset the apple cart and hurt someone's feelings. Um, and so they don't. And now there's all these pagans, you know, if you want to call them that, or just secularists that don't believe in God and have their sexual ethics are probably not the same as ours. And they're promoting that within their good message about what it means to be a man. Um, and so they're essentially like an Absalom who's stealing the hearts of all the men in our society. When 
there's a vacuum and that's happening when the church should have been doing that. We didn't. But in that space, that, that manosphere space, there's also the Christian manosphere that I would put you, Michael Foster, Eric Kahn, um, and, and, and some other guys that are doing great work, uh, in that space. And, um, what is it about? So I'm just thinking those three guys I listed you, Eric Kahn, um, and Michael Foster, what is it about men who didn't have an incredible, you know, relationship with a wonderful father, like on the, on the perfect end of that, you know, continuum. Um, and then you even look at me, I'm, I'm not really quite where you guys are, uh, as far as your reach and the influence that you guys are having or whatever, but similar situation. Um, what is it about men who didn't have that, that causes them to kind of fall into the deep understanding of the need for going back to Ephesians and Colossians to understand how to run their homes. Well, I suspect I know both those guys, uh, I know Michael a little better than Eric. Uh, I suspect it has a lot to do with, um, the fact that, you know, what doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of guys who maybe are second or third generation, uh, in terms of the Christian faith, maybe they even grew up in homeschool environment. Um, they, they, they don't, you know, they're just, they're told about a world that they need to avoid, um, and, uh, examine with some suspicion, but they don't have that, that direct and, you know, sort of knowledge. And they wonder, you know, am I being told the, the truth and is, is, is this really as bad as I've been told and that kind of stuff? Well, when you've actually kind of been in it and, and you can say, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so, um, so I think that, that, that's certainly the case for me. Um, I suspect that's the case for Michael. Um, but I, I think, you know, that we're in a moment where, it, you know, I've been in the ministry since the, the late eighties and I've never seen young men as open to the gospel as they are now. Mm, amen. And it's a marvelous thing to witness. Um, in church on Sunday, we had 70 visitors, and uh, a lot of them were young, single men. And uh, so we're just kind of like trying to, we're running as fast as we can to keep up with the opportunities. I was just at a at a, a business in downtown Battleground here a couple of days ago, and I was engaged in a conversation with the, the owner of the business. And I just bought something and we're making small talk. And he asked me, you know, what I did for a living. And I told him and he, he said, Oh, uh, what do you think of Jordan Peterson? That was his first question after mm. he knew that I was a pastor. So I explained my, what I, I thought about him. And then he told me that, uh, all of the young men who come to work for him, he makes them watch Jordan Peterson's videos on the Bible. Mm. I thought that is remarkable. Mm. Um, now I've had young men who are coming to my church who are coming out of secular background, unchurched background. And it was like Jordan Peterson was the gateway drug. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, he was like the first step. And then they, they learned about, you know, what we're doing at our church. And they said, I want to be a part of that. And now they're here. And um, it's, it's a marvelous thing to see. And um, hopefully, you know, we continue to see that, uh, you know, going forward, but um I'm actually very hopeful about the situation at the moment. Well, and that's something that makes you and, and <clears throat> I and, and many like us uh, unique uh, as an eschatological position of optimism, I think. Um, <laughs> right. 
So, um, no, I, and I completely agree. That's the reason I started 1819 news, uh, is because I think we have responsibility to respond, uh, in this cultural moment. And to me, you know, I'm, I'm trying to restrain evil in the civil sphere. That's primarily what we do, uh, informing, investigating and celebrating. We inform the people of Alabama about what's going on, why it matters. We're investigating corruption. Uh, we're an extremely corrupt state. It's a target rich environment. Uh, and then we're celebrating the things about the state that are good, true, and beautiful. Um, you know, telling stories of the state that are often overlooked by our left le- left leaning media outlet of record. Um, but more than that, I'm also trying to, you know, without getting into you know hyper specific denominational, you know, blah blah blah, blah whatever. Just in a very general, because that's the other thing I'm noticing too is a lot of the, the fault lines that people used to separate, whether it be pedo baptism, credo baptism, whether it be this doctrine or that doctrine that used to actually divide churches aren't even, it's not that anymore. It's like, Hey, we think that you shouldn't mutilate children's genitals. Great. We can fellowship together. It's a very weird <laughs> moment that we're in. Yeah, it is, um, it is. But yeah. speaking basically broad general truths about, you know, looking at the three spheres, we're restraining evil in the civil sphere. I want pastors to feel the weight of their responsibility to God and to repent and begin to preach the the whole counsel of God and apply all of Christ for all of life from the pulpit. And I want to see fathers repent and begin to take up their mantle and take their responsibility as an office holder in the government of God that is the family. Uh, and that they would realize that, that they would take, take that, <clears throat> take their responsibility seriously. And because that's how I see it is, is, is the family and the church. That is where we're invested extremely heavily but a lot of people think, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll just ignore the civil, you know, sphere completely. We'll be invested in church, which means attending, and we'll just pretend our families are okay. It's like, no, we're restraining evil in the civil sphere with everything we have. We're king, you know, John the Baptist telling King Herod he can't sleep with his brother's wife and getting our head chopped off. That's where we are in the civil sphere. And then right. in the church and the family, you know, for, if for the next 40 to 70 years, we can begin to see the momentum that you're talking about, how you're having single men coming into your church. Our church has families from 25 to 45 that have are either pregnant to having 10 children somewhere in there are flocking to our church since COVID that they were going yeah, to some, yeah. you know, super normie evangelical church or whatever that just completely handled that wrong or believe that their pastor was whatever the reason they're finding a church that's that's doing their best to, you know, apply the whole counsel of God and teach people how to raise their families in, you know, and and so you 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 take that and you see that begin to build in that momentum over the next 40 years, 70 years, whatever it may be. Um and things start to look really good. We're starting to put money away in that uh cultural capital thing that we were talking about. Right. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we're experiencing much of the the same here and some of those same dynamics. Yeah, I think the median age of my church is like 14. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And um trying to think, you know, <clears throat> I don't have all the membership numbers or whatever, but it is, I mean, there's, you know, the 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 sounds that you hear when you walk into Reformation Baptist Church is you hear men singing and babies crying, right? And that's, that's right. um right. good that's things great. to look and listen for uh when, when finding a church. So well, that's great. I'm trying to think if there's um any anything else I want to talk about? We're going to be doing a behind the scenes segment where we um, talk about toxic matriarchy. Um, you know that sounds it just bounces off people's ears like, oh my gosh, there's no such thing as a matri- every women don't sin, women are perfect. No, there's no such thing as a toxic matriarchy. Matriarchy, it's a toxic masculinity, toxic patriarchy. We'll jump into that, but I think the last point really is, you know, any words that, that you can just kind of words of advice for for young men that. 
of what they need to do to kind of take up their mantle, take their responsibility as a man seriously, some of the things that they should be doing um, so that they can, you know, if they're not married, get married. If they it's kind of like the cross politic ending, if you're married, yeah, yeah. that whole thing. But, um, you know, what do young men need to be doing so that they can begin to fulfill their calling um, as men? Yeah. Well, I think it, the, the call to exercise dominion is still in force. Amen. Uh, it's still, still there. And what we need young men to do is to develop self mastery. So you're not going to be capable of exercising authority over anything else unless you can exercise some authority over yourself. And that includes a range of things. Um, but, uh, you need to develop skills. Um, you need to develop self-control. Um, uh, you need to develop, you know, your physical strength and mental strength, um, and spiritual, obviously strength. And all of those things are things that a young man should be developing in, uh, in preparation for, uh, fi- you know, and en- entering into marriage with a, with a young woman who will be, his, you know, his partner for life, uh, bringing new life into the world and, form of obviously children as the images of God and then uh, becoming a uh, kind of a going concern. A household should be a going concern. Uh, it should be prospering and it should be, um, you know, uh, capable and uh, actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, exercising its, its ability to own and, and work with productive property uh, so that, uh, a house could look after its own affairs and that the, and that children can receive an inheritance. Um, so all of those things are things that call for a great deal of self mastery. Mm. And so I would say that's where you need to focus. And I think, uh, you need to develop an eye for a worthy woman. If you're not married, you need to be able to identify what sort of woman, uh, would make a good match for a man like you. And, and learn how to pursue uh, women in the proper way. Um, it's not it, women are not all that interested in nice guys. Uh, that's one of the things that comes as something of a surprise to young men. They just think if I'm just really nice that the girl has to like me. It's actually not the way it works. Yeah. Uh, what she's looking for it, very often is a man she can respect and admire, and who is able to exercise um, self control and self mastery, uh, who's confident. Uh, so you need to not just talk your, talk a good game. You need to be able to perform because <laughs> she's going to be looking for whether or not you're just all words or actually can back things up. Yeah. You think about it. Cause a, a young woman, particularly if she, uh, aspires to be a mother, uh, motherhood is a very challenging thing and a very, uh, it's, it, it, it's full of vulnerability. I mean, uh, a woman who's, uh, heavy with child can't run very fast. Yeah. <laughs> she, she needs a guy who can like make certain that the periphery is, is secured. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so there are a whole range of things that are just kind of, we know these things in our bones, but it's, we've been kind of educated uh, into imbecility by our society so that we like forget it. them. But uh, all you need to do is just turn off a lot of the nonsense and you can just, sort of sense it in the way the world is is uh structured and the way you are structured and the way a woman is structured and when you when you get to that place you can just say hey 
this is the way uh, God uh, has ordered nature, and I'm I'm perfectly happy with it. <laughs> yeah, I'll just I know my calling, and I'm going to pursue it. Amen. Yeah, one of the most profound things <clears throat> someone ever told me, and the profound things are always the most simple, right? He said, uh, <clears throat> "Brian, I'm going to tell you something that's going to change your life." I'm like, "Okay." He says. <clears throat> Women are attracted to men. And it's like, that's it? And he goes, yes. And now think about it. But that's right, really what right. it is, is that we've we've turned in almost, you know, in order to get the girl, we turn into this, you know, effeminate white nighty thing to try and, 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 and they're literally biologically repulsed by that. It's true. And it's, so yeah. that, that's interesting. All right. Last thing. And then we'll, we'll end this and then go into um, our behind the scenes. Something, if, if someone picks up, um, the household and the war, uh, uh, the war for the cosmos. One of the things they'll notice is um, your continued references back to Greco-Roman times, philosophers, all of these things. How important is it for young men to begin to develop an interest into the Western canon, Greco-Roman philosophy, all of those things? I don't know what you're. Everything else, I kind of knew what you were going to say. I've, this was always like reading the book. I'm like, if I ever talk to Pastor Chris, I'm going to ask him this. So, <laughs> Right. Well, I taught philosophy for a decade. So that's a, a, a large part of what, you know, is behind that. You know, I, uh, so I, I was a professor of philosophy, uh, taught at, in a, at a college in the Boston area. And there's a great deal of uh, good stuff in the Western canon that you can draw on. Uh, there's also a lot of trash. You know, yeah. So it's not as though anything that's you find there is worthwhile, uh, and you got to sort it out. Just like the early church fathers, you know, they picked and chose, and we can too. You know, the old saying: "If you eat chicken, you throw away the bones." Yeah, I think that's that's true with this. So we need to be discerning. So, for example, I'm I'm rereading right now Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Yeah. There's just so much great stuff in Meditations, but uh, you know, Marcus Aurelius didn't believe in the resurrection. Yeah. He he didn't know something that we know that makes a huge difference. Yeah. So when you read Aurelius with that in mind, you see a despair, kind of a, a, a sense of re, sort of resignation to the inevitability of death. Um, now, he heroically uh, embraces that and says, this is just the way things are. I'm going to have to just do the best I can in light of this and trust that and he uses the word providence. He believed in the gods. He believed in providence. He believed in the lagos. He just didn't just didn't know about the resurrection. So, um, because that is the case, you can't take him, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, at face value. You have to say, okay, I got to sort some things out here. This is good. This is not good. That kind of stuff. But there were many things that that. Uh, you know the apostles uh, and and the leaders of the of the early church shared in common with their uh, pagan neighbors, and one of those things was the centrality of the household uh, when it came to uh, productive life and the importance of of the household. And that and that's something that, that you know you see in non Christian sources and reaffirmed in Christian sources. Um, they, they were on the same page with that stuff. Interesting. I think one of the ways that I kind of started to see it um, as I began to read certain Christian men that I really admired their work, what they built over the course of 30 years, just the fruit that they displayed. 
was that they all read that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, that's really weird. Why shouldn't we be, isn't that antithetical? And, but in the same way that the gospel went out over Roman roads, people always want to talk about that. You know, the idea of Paideia, the apostle Paul brings it right into those Ephesians, you know, those things in Ephesians, train your children up in the nurture and admonition. That's Paideia Nuthateo. We don't even have English words for that. This would be a whole nother podcast, but is this idea of a, a, a wholesale enculturation of how do you create the perfect Roman citizen? How do you create the perfect Greek citizen through pedagogy? How do you train them up and turn them into uh, the perfect citizen is Paideia. And, right. and, and, and Paul is saying, train your children up in a Christian Paideia, a wholesale enculturation where you're doing everything you possibly can to guarantee that they become members of the Christian Commonwealth. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, Something to keep in mind with Paul, too, is that he was a remarkably educated man. And when he found himself in Athens, he was able off the top of his head to quote Stoic philosophers mm. uh, and use uh, Stoic um, statements that he could agree with as a basis for talking to his audience about something they didn't know. So if you go back and you look at, you know, Acts chapter 17 and examine it closely, he begins with a creational, he starts with creation, with what we ought to know uh, from creation. In other words, that there's a creator and that we owe him worship. He tells them that their idol worship is not pleasing to God, which actually wouldn't have surprised them as much as I think some modern readers would think. Uh, but the, th the thing that led to the, the rejection uh, of Paul is the way he closes, and, the, and he closes with the resurrection. So he was addressing Stoic and Epicurean philosophers who believed that uh, essentially in annihilation, that at, at death we just simply dissolve into the elements and our consciousness is lost. Yeah, They believed that. And Paul said, no, there, there's a resurrection. In fact, there has already been a resurrection, and the man who was raised is going to judge the earth. And at, that's the moment <laughs> that they all sort of recoil and yeah. say, away with this guy. Now, some of them believe, but, uh, you know, he was from Tarsus, which was uh, considered one of the great centers of Stoic philosophy in antiquity. So it was right up there. It was kind of like, if you think about you know, sort of the way the world is set up here. We think about centers of, you know, study. You know, you think about Oxford or you think about Cambridge and or Cambridge, United States, where Harvard is or New Haven, where Yale is. I'd say that that Tarsus was probably like Providence, Rhode Island, where Brown University is. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a place that was known for a rich intellectual life, mm. and that's where. Paul was raised, and he was a Roman citizen there. In fact, the Jewish community in Tarsus received their citizenship uh, from Caesar himself, uh, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly, uh, because of their support uh, during uh, the the, uh, the, re the revolts that had to be suppressed. Wow. So uh, lots of fun stuff to think about. <laughs> yeah. You know, the gospel and the faith is simple, but that doesn't mean that it's not, you know, you can't plumb the depths of it and, and really just continue to be enlightened. Well, thank you again uh, so much. And then um, if you're listening, uh, pick up um, C.R. Wiley, C.R. Wiley's books. Um, I think if you start out with the man of the house and the household in the war for the cosmos, you'll be tremendously blessed. Um, and the house of Tom Bombadil, <clears throat> it was uh, <laughs> very interesting. I began, I'm now in my 
desire to jump into the Western canon. I started with Lord of the Rings and I watched the movies and Tom Bombadil's not in it. If he is, it's some type and shadow that I didn't see. And I'm reading the book and I'm like, how did they leave this guy out of the movies? Um, really incredible. So I, I thought that was good. Um, but yeah, check these books out, man. If you're listening to this, I know I get emails and text messages from uh, a lot of young men who listen to this podcast for this exact reason. If you've not read man of the house, if you've not read the household and the war of the cosmos, go get those books, um, begin to apply the things that he's, he's teaching in those books in the Christian manosphere. A lot of these guys that I know, um, pastor Chris is, uh, referred to almost like the fatherly figure among all of them. So, uh, go there, um, read, <clears throat> go there, get the books, uh, read the stuff. Is there anywhere else people can find you theology podcast? Where else? Well, I think those are the main places. Okay. Um, you know, um, yeah. I mean, I'm on social media, but you know, I'm not sure I'm all that worth following. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, just as when Glenn Sunshine was here, the Theology Podcast, P-U-G Podcast, um, on all podcasting platforms. So that'll wrap it up. Uh, as always, guys, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry.